is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. This episode, we're doing something slightly different. We are going to be talking to world-famous cognitive neuroscientist Adrian Owen. I say world-famous to the rest of the world. To Richard Wiseman, he is... My pal Adrian. We've known each other for a very long time. So we studied psychology together uh, in the mid-1980s at UCL. That's where we met. Uh, We've kept in touch over the years. We've influenced each other's career and and thinking, sometimes in a positive way. Uh, Very (laughs) early on, when uh, we were undergraduates, we came together and did a a double act, a a comedy juggling double act in Covent Garden. This is the good stuff. Yes, this is what everybody everybody wants to know. Uh, So we spent a summer. Uh, trying to earn a living, emphasis on trying uh, to earn a living as, a, as comedy jugglers. And we weren't very good at juggling and weren't very funny. So we decided to move on from that and do a tour of the south coast of Britain with our comedy magic show, the Captain Fearless Magic Show. <laughs> wow. It all comes back to magic in the end, doesn't it? I think so. I think everything does. It was a great show, providing you hadn't seen it. Uh, if you had seen it, then uh, it's it's not so good. And so we did that for a month. And then he became a world-famous neuroscientist. <laughs> and I went on to study psychology and the paranormal. I mean, it's a very logical career progression. Most comedy jugglers uh, end up doing one of those two things. And why are we talking to him today? He's famous for all sorts of things, but primarily for looking at people in a vegetative state and scanning their brains in order to try and communicate with them. So this is individuals who've got no other way of communicating with the outside world. So it's a super clever idea and some amazing research. This is an episode of Two Halves. We found somebody to answer your questions about the human brain. I always say, oh, I'm a social psychologist interested in the mind, uh, but not the brain. And we've asked my pal to answer them for us. Right, let's speak to Adrian. I'd like to introduce you, Marnie, to uh, Professor Adrian Owen. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Marnie. Hello, Richard. And thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Can you give us a sort of flavour for for what it is you're doing and and why that's then become well-known all over the world? Yeah. Um, You know, I was really into brain imaging. And for the first part of my academic career, I did what is sort of colloquially known as brain mapping. And after about 10 or 12 years of that, I, I kind of lost interest in it. Perhaps it moved too far away from behaviour. You know, perhaps it didn't really help people. It didn't really uh, have any sort of great clinical ramifications. I mean, this is a criticism that a lot of people level at techniques like functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. You know, it's been around now for 30 years. And a lot of people say, well, you know, there have been tens of thousands of brain imaging studies. You know, what has it really told us? And I think it's told us a lot about how the brain is organised, but it hasn't really proven to be terribly useful, say, for many patients or for clinical reasons. And that's where my interest really sort of started to turn. So, well, could we not use this for some kind of good? You know, and brain injury was the obvious way to go because, you know, I'd done a lot of work with patients with brain injury, not, not scanning in those days. But the two things sort of seemed to come together. And I thought, well, can't we do something with with this, these brain imaging technologies to help people who uh, have sustained very serious brain injuries. And just fast forwarding a little bit, we sort of got into this 
situation where I started to study patients with the most catastrophic brain injuries, people who have been pronounced as being in a so-called vegetative state, it's sort of a, a zombie-like state, if you like, where they, they are somewhat animate, but it was assumed that they have no awareness. And by that, I mean, you know, they don't know who they are, where they are and the predicament that they're in. So how did you find out if there's actually more going on here? Right. The reasoning, I mean, after these sort of 12 or 15 years of playing around with fMRI scanners, I sort of came to the conclusion, well, what if you could activate your brain? You couldn't physically respond, but you were still in there. Could we get somebody to signal that with some kind of brain signal? Because, you know, by then we were doing all sorts of cool things with with fMRI showing that, you know, people could activate their brains when they, you know, imagined doing this or when they thought about that. Or So I thought, well, maybe they can sort of do actions. Maybe they can behave, if you like, but not physically behave, mentally behave. And we could use that as a sort of a, a marker uh, that somebody was actually in there. I'm skipping over about 10 years of work here. You know, it wasn't quite as, as simple as details, that. Details, details. <laughs> find a way to show this came across this idea well what about if we got somebody to imagine moving around vigorously um could we detect in their brain whether they were doing that you know they obviously the patients the vegetative patients obviously can't do that for real but if they imagined it could we determine that they actually were and we came up with this idea uh of getting them to imagine they were playing a game of tennis and that's simply because we wanted an easy way of explaining to people that we want you to think about making big upper body movements, particularly waving your arms around, because we know that when people think about that, an area of the brain known as the premotor cortex activates. And this is a part of the brain that's at the top and at the, the front of the brain. So um, if you are somebody, it turns out, to imagine playing tennis, they don't have to actually make any movements, but you get this lovely activity in this area known as the premotor cortex. Okay, so those thought processes can be seen on a scan as brain activity. Uh, yeah, the reasoning at the time was, well, let's, let's put a, a vegetative patient in the scanner and ask them to imagine playing tennis. And if they activate their premotor cortex, well, it's not something that's just going to happen by chance. It must be because they're thinking about playing tennis. And So in order to use this as a way to communicate with these patients, you need to also stimulate the opposing area of the brain. Yeah, and that's the 10 years of research that we've skipped over, really. This is where I I was able to draw on all of the brain mapping that I'd done up until that point. We worked with several different tasks, and it turned out the tennis playing one was really good. The other one that was very different but also very good was to get people to imagine thinking about moving around a familiar environment, so-called what psychologists refer to as spatial navigation, um, just we would just ask people to imagine walking through your front door, now make your way to the bathroom in your mind, uh, thinking about that route and, you know, what you see along the way. And, you know, that produces lovely activity in the back and the top of the brain, near and known as the parietal lobe. So you've got those two tasks. That means that you have somebody who's in vegetative state. You can now ask them to do one of those two tasks and see whether the part of the brain lights up that corresponds to that, which presumably means that they understood the instructions were able to do it, i.e., to some extent, are conscious. Absolutely. I mean, this is how we ended up concluding that some of these patients were conscious because there are actually lots of basic sort of building blocks of cognition that you can tick off. So you can ask them to do one of these two tasks and see if the relevant bit of the brain lights up. And to take this one step further... This means then they can potentially be used to answer yes and no questions. 
we can, yeah. We started to communicate with some of them by, as, as you've said there, we would get a patient to imagine playing tennis to indicate a yes, imagine moving around your house to indicate a no. And actually now produced a whole sort of branch of research in this area, which is how could you move towards that situation of asking them about therapeutic interventions? You know, do you want to try this drug? What about this new kind of brain surgery that might, you know, fix you? Could you could you communicate with them about that? And we've written a few papers recently on it. And the answer is, yeah, the technology is there. You could do it. Uh, it might take a long time, might be quite expensive, but you weigh that up against the fact that these patients have no other way of communicating, no other choice. I think it would it would be worthwhile pursuing. I think it is worthwhile pursuing. What difference it makes to the families? So if they know that a loved one is or isn't conscious. You must have seen lots of situations where they're in, then interacting with that loved one. What difference does it make to them to know one way or the other? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. And, and in many ways, that's the most satisfying part of my job, talking to families. It's really amazing. And the point I, I've made in the past, but I'll make it again now, is that it, it, weirdly, it doesn't seem to matter what the outcome is. You might think, well, it's, they probably think it's or maybe you'd think it's great if we discover that their loved one is still conscious and not so good if we don't find that evidence. But actually, mostly they're really happy regardless of the outcome because I think they feel that they've gone the extra mile. You know, obviously, if they find out that there's part of the person there that they thought was long gone, that's tremendously exciting for them. Uh, but also, most families that I interact with derive also quite a lot of satisfaction out of some sort of finality about uh you know finding out that actually the person isn't suffering isn't aware of the situation that they're in is maybe not you know bored to death every day so it i mean it's it is one of the most satisfying parts of my job interacting with families feeding back to them telling them what the real situation is as far as their their relative is concerned Adrian, that is fascinating work, important work, and work that's gone all around the world. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. In part two of our, our Brain Based On Your Mind, we're going to be giving you all sorts of questions that uh, we come up with about the brain and uh, seeing what answers you come up with. This is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and in this episode, we're talking to neuroscientist Adrian Owen. And if you want us to keep doing this, we need your help and support. Please review us and share episodes with your friends, and please subscribe too. It helps other people to find us. Shall I uh, feed you some questions? Yes, please do. I'm ready. Okay, this one's a big one. Ed Benson wants to know, are male and female brains fundamentally different? Yes, that is a big one. I'm going to take the question quite literally and say the answer is no and I'll answer it in a really basic scientific way which is that I can tell you that if you take an MRI scan and show it to some of the greatest neuroimaging experts in the world they will not be able to tell you which is which right so take taking the question quite literally there is no fundamental difference between the male and the female brain it's true functionally as well uh, if you put a uh, you know, a male and a female or a group of males, a group of females in, in a scanner and uh, have them sort of do something and look at the brain activity and give that to the, uh, you know, the greatest brain imaging experts in the world, they won't be able to tell you 
who the men are and who the women? So the answer is no, there is no fundamental differences between male and female brands. Now, that's not to say there are no differences at all, um, but usually they're sort of at the group level and they're really quite modest that, you know, if you take a, a, a thousand women and a thousand men and, uh, and, and compare the brains, there will be, you know, there might be some minor differences, but they, uh, they're extremely modest and very often that sort of work is not easily replicable. Um, and as I say, it, at the individual level, it doesn't apply to uh, a single person. Okay, that's a, that's a no for that. I should say, you did actually scan my brain quite a few years ago, and all I can remember is that my nose didn't fit on the scanner. Right. <laughs> apart from that... Well, it doesn't surprise me. Apart, doesn't surprise apart from me. that, is he normal? No, no, not at all, no. But I, I didn't need to do a brain scan to answer that. <laughs> so moving on, uh, I think you've done some of this work. Uh, do all these commercial brain training programmes really work? No. Next question. Okay, no, I'll... I'll, I'll <laughs> I think we're hoping yes, for a we... slightly longer answer. <laughs> right. Well, this is something I've done quite a lot of work on, actually, but I, I'll try and give it a sort of a succinct answer. Uh, in 2010, we took about 1,600 people and had them do what was, at that point, the most popular brain training program available. I can't, I can't name what it was for legal reasons. We had them do that for six weeks, and we tested them at the beginning of that time and at the end on all sorts of cognitive tasks to see whether we could detect any difference uh, in their brains or their behaviour. And the answer was there was absolutely no difference at all. Uh, people got really quite good at brain training games, uh, but they didn't improve at all on anything else. I mean, we've done this and as have other people several times since. And, you know, the, the answer is, as everybody knows, you know, practice works. If you want to learn to play the piano, then practice a lot of play the piano. It's not going to make you a better trumpet player. Um, and so it's, the problem is, uh, and we had a paper two or three years ago actually demonstrating why this is the case. And the answer is that, you know, mental fitness is really similar, or at least it's analogous to physical fitness, which is that it comes in many forms, you know, and how fit are you compared to me is not a question that you can easily answer because, you know, perhaps I can run faster than you, but perhaps, you know, you can uh, keep going for longer than I can in a marathon situation, or maybe you can lift heavier weights than I can, or maybe I can throw a discus further than you can. Physical fitness comes in many forms and mental fitness comes in many forms as well. And therefore, you know, if you train on one of those things, you're not going to get better at, you know, in general terms at, at other things. You're going to get better at that thing, but at very little else. And we've shown why that is with, with brain imaging quite recently. Well, one more here. Um, now, I, I can't meditate at all. I tried it a couple of times. I got very, very bored. But is meditation good for your brain, number one? And two, have you ever tried it yourself? Which I don't believe you have. So if the answer is yes, I have, I think you're a liar. <laughs> Um, I have conducted a few studies on meditation specifically to answer this question, which is, you know, is, is medication, is, is medication, is meditation good for your, for your brain health? And a lot of people think it is. And we've just done a review of this. And I tell you what I think the answer is. I think the answer is that meditation improves sleep and sleep is good for brain health. So I think there's what we often call in psychology a mediating factor. I think that, um, Yes, there are some studies that have shown that people that meditate regularly perform better on some cognitive tasks, but they, it turns out they also report having better sleep. Now, if, you know, for whatever reason, because it relaxes you, because it's, uh, you know, it, it pushes all the chaos of the day to the back of your mind or whatever, 
whatever it is that meditation does to people that helps them sleep, this in turn, I think, helps cognitive function. So, yeah, we've yet to publish that that data, so I don't want to make too much of it, but I, I think that's what's going on in the relationship between meditation and cognition. Can we move from meditation to medication? Um, yeah. So magic mushrooms... People who talk about taking them say that it, it, they reach a higher plane of consciousness. Yeah. Is there actually such a thing as a higher plane of consciousness or is it is it like an on-off switch, you're conscious or you're unconscious? I love that question. I love that question because, of course, I've done, you know, spent a lot of my career looking at so-called disorders of consciousness, things that make you demonstrably less conscious and I, I don't only mean things like you know the vegetative state we've also done studies of things like general anesthesia where we take healthy people we give them a drug like propofol which is a general anesthetic and we we put them to sleep we sedate them and we look at what happens to their brain so I, yeah I, I've done a lot of work on sort of lowering levels of consciousness and this question is really interesting well, what could you do it if you can lower it is there anything you can do to make it higher so um we're looking at this right now um uh not not because we want to put people into a sort of a higher level of consciousness but to try and understand what this means you know what does it mean now, there clearly is something going on and obviously people's brains change and people feel differently in some way that's not controversial but what is it? What is it that people are describing when they say they're in a higher form of consciousness? So we're doing this in a way that actually goes back to our undergraduate days, um, Richard. You know, we, do, we did a lot of stuff on, uh, we learned a lot of things about visual illusions, for example. The active ingredient in magic mushrooms is, a, is some, something called uh, psilocybin. And, um, you know, one of the things that one of my graduate students is doing uh, with people who are on and off psilocybin is looking at how susceptible they are to visual illusions because you know one idea or at least the idea we have is that you know visual illusions in a sense are the is a sort of the brain being tricked into um you know seeing something as different than it actually is if you have a higher level of consciousness are you less susceptible to your brain being tricked in that way for example. So that's the question that we're, we're asking there. We're also doing a lot of cognitive tests in participants to see whether they're better or worse on, on psilocybin. It might seem obvious that they're going to be worse because they're, you know, in some senses, um, you know, they're, they're high and they, they, you know, you think they will be less. But, you know, perhaps this releases something. I mean, many, I mean, think about a task like a, an inhibition, you know, many cognitive tasks involve inhibition where you have to try and avoid doing what is the obvious response and think about it a little. Well, if you, if you are a little bit released, uh, a little bit, you know, uh, less constrained by the, the cognitive machinery of your brain, perhaps you could do better at tasks like that. So n not that we think calling this a higher form of consciousness is the right way to go. But we're trying to use these techniques to understand what people mean when they say, you know, I've reached a higher plane or I'm, I've reached a higher form of consciousness. Didn't, didn't we used to talk about consciousness up a treehouse when we went in Bournemouth or something, when we were about 19? We did. We did. And in fact, I've recently written about this because I'm writing another book about executive function. And um, it does open uh, with you and me sitting in the treehouse in the New Forest. We went on holiday, I think it was in nine, at the end of our first year, so in, in summer of 86, to the New Forest. And I think by then we'd 
decided we were fully rounded psychologists and could solve all of the problems of the the world. Um, and we sat in the treehouse. And yes, the conversation was actually about the relationship between IQ. It was it, we were trying, and this is something that I, I continued to work on to this day it was around whether some people are more conscious than others and then we of course say well what does it mean to be more conscious and uh and we move towards things like iq and what makes one person sort of more successful in life than another person and um i don't know i still don't know whether consciousness is the answer but i I still think it's a reasonable question to ask i mean if if uh one species could be shown to be, say, more conscious than other species. I think it's a reasonable question to ask whether a person could, one person could be shown to be more or less conscious than another person. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I think it's an interesting question. If you start your book with that, would it be fair to say that conversation kick-started the whole of your career? I see where you're going here. <laughs> well, I'm reluctantly, very, very reluctantly going to say yes, Richard. Yes! Um, Back of the net. (laughs) So actually, all credit really needs to go to Richard Wiseman. I think so. I mean, that's that's the main takeaway from the the episode. episode, Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. When when I say we were having a conversation, it was more me talking at Richard, as I recall. I mean, he just sat there listening. Um, no that's for sure that never happens um yeah i mean it certainly has influenced my thinking ever since then i mean i think this is a really interesting idea of you know of what makes people different to one another what makes one person i I think it's influenced um your career and your books too rich i don't know whether that specific conversation did but you know a lot of things that you write about at the behavioral level are about you know what you can do to uh, be more successful or make your life better or make you feel better about yourself. And I, I think I do the same thing with the brain. Yeah, I, mean, I think Adrian's right, actually, but both of us have focused on change and, and improve it, which actually sounds obvious from a psychological point of view, but actually not that many psychologists do it. And then both of us have gone away in, in very different ways and, and, and looked at that notion of change and how you get people to, what sort of interventions, as psychologists would say, um, that, that get people to be happier or more successful or whatever it is. Which brings us on to our final question. Many people ask this. Um, I'm going to, uh, at King of Wessex was one of them. And they talk about rewiring the brain. I never know what anyone means by the phrase rewiring the brain. Uh, but is it possible, Professor Owen, brain expert, to rewire the brain? <laughs> to what ends? Well, again, I, I, I... well, well, King King of Wessex wants to know if to, to the ends of pushing you to get stuff done rather than just vegging out in front of the telly. Yeah, I mean, yes, you can rewire the brain. I mean, let's take an ex, you know a really obvious example of you know, a patient who has a stroke. Um, a part of their brain is severely damaged by the stroke and maybe it's you know that part of the brain can never recover uh typically that patient will go through uh rehabilitation and um that rehabilitation will result in the brain being rewired and what we mean by that is that perhaps another part of the brain will take on some of the functions of the damaged part of the brain now uh you know to put real sort of meat on these bones quite literally think about it in terms of movement you know patient loses movement of their right arm because some stroke they can be they can go through intensive rehabilitation and recover movement of their arm uh many people might think well that something's gone on 
in the arm. That's all happening in the brain. There was never anything wrong with the arm. It's the way the brain controls the arm. And you can, in a sense, rewire the brain so that other parts of it take over that movement function, that, that right arm. It may not recover 100%, but you know, huge, huge gains can be made in, in that respect. So yes, literally, you, you can rewire the brain. Um, but you know, the, the, the question as it was asked was sort of, I think, uh, not looking for a specific example like that. It was saying, you know, can we rewire it? So, so we, what was it? Uh, don't veg out in front of the sofa and actually get stuff done. And I think that's more likely the other way round in the sense that, and I think I'm going to leave this with you, Richard. I think, you know, there are behavioural things that one could do to change one's behaviour uh, to encourage things like getting stuff done rather than vegging in front of the TV. And yeah, down downstream, that may have effects on your brain because, you know, we are our brains. Everything we do, everything we are is a function of uh, the, the activity of our brains. But that's not quite the same as rewiring your brain in order to make something happen. It's actually the other way around, that we behaviorally make something happen and that will, down the line, have an effect on our brain. So I think it's I think it's important that people understand the order of things in that context. In fact, we have another whole episode on uh, on motivation. So that's out there if people want to listen to it. Uh, that has been fantastic. Thank you very much. It pains me to say it, but your research is fantastic. It's been all around the world. It's made a huge difference to people's lives. So congratulations on doing that. Uh, obviously, it's been 40 glorious years of friendship. And I want to thank you personally uh, for many of the ups uh, and, of course, many, many of the downs uh, in, my, uh, in my life. And, uh, and thank you for coming on the show, Adrian Owen, Professor Adrian Owen. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Uh, anytime. Thanks very much. So there we go. A fascinating chat with Adrian. We got some great answers, very straightforward answers yep, from him. Yeah, to uh, some quite complex questions. We should say Adrian has a book out, uh, Into the Grey Zone, which looks at his work with scanning and communication. And I think it's amazing to talk to the, the person who actually did this work. I mean, pretty much any course in psychology in the world now will talk about these studies. So great to get it uh, from the man himself. Yeah, we should we should book him as our regular brain guy. I'm sure he's not busy with other things. No, he does nothing. nothing. Absolutely, he just sits there waiting for our call. Pretty much. and Telltale. This has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podomo.com And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it tell your friends you did why should you be the only ones to suffer although it does help others find us and don't forget to subscribe thanks bye bye bye